At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. It's been a difficult season for the world, and so I went this week, like many of you, I'm sure, to, to try to find some relief from all the anxieties of it all, and so I opened up Twitter, and as I was scrolling, <laughs> I found no relief. No, I came across a tweet from uh, actually a pastor, Scott Sauls, who wrote an incredible book I read over this last year called The Gentle Answer, and he excerpted a part of his book and talked about it for a moment in this tweet. And, and I just want to pass the idea past our family today because I think maybe uh, you might resonate with it as well. This is what it says. Can you throw the quote on the screen? It said, uh, this generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. Hate into an asset. Angst, suspicion, outrage, and outright hate increasingly shape our response to the world around us. But Jesus is a God of reconciliation and peace. He's the God of the gentle answer. As I was reading that, I, I was leery to agree that it was a true first. Hard to know sometimes whether a generation has ever been worse or better. But isn't hate seeming to become a native language for us? A first impulse. The way we respond out of habit. Is it yours? In order to find out, we put a monitor at the entrance into the parking lot. And uh, we're going to review some footage here. Uh, we have work to do. No, maybe you're thinking, listen, that, you're, you're way overstating the case. That's not me. I'm not a hater. I don't hate anyone. But the Bible challenges that assumption from the very beginning. In fact, apart from Jesus, it has something else to say entirely. We could even see Paul in the book of Romans kind of case in point say in Romans 1 that all who reject the gospel are haters of God. And in fact, before any of us knew the gospel, he says in chapter 5, we were enemies of God. Enemy there being the very word of hostility or hatred. The point scripture continues to make is that all of us, whether we like to admit it or not, were at one time children to disobedience, following the ruler of this world dispositioned toward hatred. Helps you understand your spouse and children a little bit better, among other things. We're all haters. In fact, we have an example from the very author of the book that we've been reading here in 1 John in our series, The Forgotten Virtue. If we look at the Apostle John, we see something, and it's interesting, because the opposite of hate, of course, maybe is love. And John used the word love a lot. In fact, in his gospel, following the life of Jesus, John used the word love 57 times. That may not seem like a big number, but it's more than each of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
combined. John wrote about love a lot. In his short book of 1 John, it's just five chapters. You can read the whole thing in like 20 minutes. He used the word love 46 times. He talked about love so much that he's referred to as the apostle of love. But this is the same John that was given a nickname by Jesus that inferred something very different instead. Jesus referred to John as a son of thunder along with his brother, which pointed towards his overriding characteristic at the time, one of reckless energy, prone to an abuse of power or energy or zeal in a way that was very unloving to the people around him. And in fact, in Luke chapter 9, I'm just going to read this example. It says this, that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people there didn't receive him because his face was toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, it's very loving of him, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I'd blame video games, but guys... Jesus turned, it says in the next verse, and rebuked them. We're tempted maybe to give John the benefit of the doubt. Listen, he wanted Jesus to burn everyone alive out of righteous anger, that they had turned away the very Son of God. In fact, maybe we'd want to be just as passionate. But then Jesus wouldn't have rebuked him if it was the right thing to do. The rebuke meant that John was wrong. The son of thunder was not showing love, at the very least. John used to be a hater. So how did the son of thunder become the apostle of love? How is that even possible? Can people even change that dramatically? Can they change that dramatically? And could we change that dramatically? And let's not even talk about our world. Maybe whatever happened to John and whatever he has to say to us would be helpful to us right now in an age of hatred. So as we pick up in the passage, I would invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 11, really kind of in earnest. In 1 John chapter 3, turn with me in your Bibles to that passage. It's right at the very end of the Bible. And we're going to see John talking about the very definition of the way to distinguish the difference between a child of God and someone who isn't a child of God. In fact, he would call them a child of the devil. In fact, just before we pick up our passage, John writes in verse 10 of chapter 3, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And John doesn't give a third option when it comes to how we should treat the people in our community around us. 
People are either in one group or the other. They're alive in Christ or they're slaves to sin. They're slaves to their hatred. There's no difference for John. One thing to him is clear. That faith in Christ results in a love like Christ. The faith in Christ results in a love like Christ's love for us. That always happens every time. So what John makes abundantly clear. And he's just passing on the teachings of Christ. When Jesus said, you have heard it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them who persecute you. So that you may be sons and daughters of your father who's in heaven. And he said again, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Faith in Christ results in a love like Christ. John makes it a point that the failure to love another person. We can argue about that definition. What does love really look like there? But a failure to love them at the end of the day is really a failure to love God. And we're going to spend lots of time talking about that. But John quickly illustrates the opposite for us because it's helpful to see the other side of the picture. So in, in verse 12, he, he draws an illustration from Old Testament history. He says this, we, we should not be like Cain. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. All right, all of us can probably say fairly, all right, I can agree to these rules so far, right? I can agree to this. Being of the evil one, murdering his brother, like nobody's in the opposition party to this establishment right now. But, but John gets to the heart of what was going on in the life of Cain, and we need to be quick to listen. John asks, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. We, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John start, ends with something we can maybe agree with. We could see why. Like, if you have life from God and love from God in your heart, that never results in you murdering someone. Okay, I can, I can see why that makes sense. But one step before that, he says something that I struggle with. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And that doesn't quite seem fair. I want to say, hold up, wait a second. There's a lot worse things you can do. There's people who have actually done a lot worse. Don't include me in that camp. The history of Cain and Abel, maybe you're not familiar, can be found in Genesis chapter 4, right at the beginning of the human experience. The firstborn son of Adam and Eve, Cain, became a murderer in the first degree as we'd understand it today. It's crazy to think about how quickly the story of humanity turns dark. You see, hate takes 
It takes. Hate is our instinct, and it takes what it wants. That's what hate looks like. We can think of really obvious examples maybe of hate, really specific illustrations that no one argues about. But at the end of the day, hate is our instinct, and it takes what it wants. And apart from true life in Christ, we're slaves to that rebellion. Our instincts are to take what we want, to burn against anyone or anything that stands in our way, even when the way they're standing in our way is by doing what is good. And that's what we see in the tragedy of Cain and Abel. In fact, I'd love to just look at the passage. In Genesis 4-3, you can follow along on the screen. It says this, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering, a fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. There's not a lot of description in this. The plot is straightforward. There's pieces maybe that we're missing, we don't understand. But as the Bible unravels, what we understand is that Abel offered his best and he worships rightfully and out of a sincere heart. The Lord is pleased. Abel is righteous. But Cain offers the Lord less than his best out of duty and insecurity and insincerity. And the Lord isn't pleased. And envy is birthed and resentment and comparison and hatred takes root in the heart of Cain. And God calls it out. He says, listen, sin is crouching out the door. Reject this. But Cain allows that temptation to rule over him, and he acted out of that hatred, and he murdered his own brother, carrying out his own self-satisfied judgment, assuming the judge, the real judge, wouldn't notice or wouldn't care. And this historical moment reveals a foundational spiritual principle about life in our broken world, that hatred is our instinct. That it takes what it wants. That's what we default to apart from Christ, before Christ, and even in Christ when our flesh and our sin battle against us. I wonder if Jesus had Cain and Abel and their offerings in his mind when he said what John echoes in Matthew 5. Jesus said, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother, angry with his brother, will be liable to judgment. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Establish love. 
Then come and offer your gift. Jesus acknowledges this reality of the way hate corrupts us and says, even if you're about to worship me and you notice there's enmity, there's hatred, there's relational problem in your life with those around you, stop. It's like we should announce every morning on Facebook, don't come to church unless you are living in love with the people around you. I think we're afraid to post that. I think we're afraid of what that would mean for us if we really took inventory. Cain represents the world's attitude, our attitude apart from the rescue of Jesus. We naturally are against others, especially when their way of living conflicts with or exposes our own. So what's John's message to the church he's writing to? The churches across modern-day Turkey. Really, to us. His message is to follow Christ, not Cain. He says in 1 John 3, 16, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or deed. Sorry, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John points back to the example of Jesus who laid down his life for us in our place for our sins. That's the true expression of genuine love. If hate is our instinct and it takes what it wants, love is of God. Love is of God and it serves from the heart. And John shares that we should love in deed and in truth actively because that's the example that Jesus set for us. Something I think we miss is that at the very heart of early Christians' view of reality was a man who died for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness. Following Jesus, then, could only lead to a radically different way of dealing with those who are different than us, who are living with us, who are disappointing to us, who are better than us, who are evil towards us. One of the distinguishing marks of the child of God is love. A love that originates in God, displays itself in actions of self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. John is simply challenging us with the instructions that Jesus himself had shared when he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I've commanded you. Now, Jesus literally laid down his life as a part of God's redemptive plan for us and in a way that no one else ever could or will. But his example of sacrificially serving the needs of others is what God, John here, has in mind. This is love in action. Simple steps within our control. Giving away our possessions to those in need, John mentions, as an idea, a starting point. But it extends all the way to the most ultimate of actions. Giving our life 
so that others may know Jesus. Church family, love is such a defining characteristic of God that the absence of love in the life of his child is a major inconsistency with the message of love that's been proclaimed to us and the life of love that was given to us. God, through John, is calling us to kill the self-love of the world that's alive in us from the start and eventually leads us down the path of blindly abandoning the needs of others, hatred, and calls us into a love that prioritizes their needs above our own. That's why one of the values we have here at Woodside that we talk about from time to time and try to work towards ensuring exists across our church family is that we live to serve. We believe that is a call on our church family. That Christ-like love is useful. It's practical. It's tangible. This love has eyes to see the needs around us and specifically those in our spiritual family. So, let's get practical. Because as the theologian G.P. Lewis said, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H. Humanity. Big idea. It's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women. He's a little too blunt here, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Catch this. This is the way he hands his quote. Throw this on the screen. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Is that us, too, on the other side? Maybe you'd say, hey, I don't hate. I love everybody. And in loving everybody, what we really say is we love nobody. We just sit in the middle. Let's love people in particular. We need to serve each other when we're here, gathered for worship, or here online tuned in. And that starts with showing up, logging in, being a part of our church life. It starts with serving each other's kids in our kids' ministry or coming alongside families during the week. It comes down to using the gifts God has given us actively, not assuming that church is something we attend and forgetting that church is something we build together. We share our resources. We need to serve each other by giving generously. That's love in action. We serve each other even outside of worship experiences in the church family, though, through life groups, right? Taking care of each other's needs, praying for each other, helping each other to follow Christ, helping one another learn how to live on mission as we serve those in our neighborhoods and networks for the cause of Christ. That's love in action. You might be able to drop a hundred ways that the Holy Spirit would say to you, don't stop where the guy on stage ended. Love looks like more for you. What simple step is God asking of you today? The point is that love does more than talk. It's rooted in action, wrapped in truth, and full of Christ-likeness. Love is of God and serves from the heart. You know, it's unfortunate that our culture, I think, tends to think that Christians hate them. I think our culture thinks that Christians tend to hate them because 
Christians tend to hate them. The way we talk and the way we treat them, the way we don't show up, the way we walk, noses high in the air past them and they're hurt. How did Jesus respond? How did the early church? It wasn't by trying to win arguments. It wasn't by closing his fist. It wasn't with revenge. It was with weapons of truth expressed in a love that served. It's a fitting weekend to follow Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s lead in the way he said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Because hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, leads to murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. But love, love is to characterize the church whose prototype is Christ, originating in God and leading to self-sacrifice, evidencing of the eternal life that we have. And it's an overwhelming task. But hear this. We can love because we've been loved. Love is not going to come from my heart or my head. My wife is the most loving person I know. And love doesn't come from her heart her head. Love comes from God. It was his idea. And it was his action. In fact... Scripture says that God is love. And he loved us, which releases us from a trap of returning to others what they've given to us, which frees us up to pursue sacrifice in ways that don't make sense. We can love because we've been loved. This is the gospel, that Jesus physically lived and died our spiritual death to bring us eternal and physical spiritual life. The love of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the loving empowerment of the Spirit can be ours. Our hate forgiven, becoming the family of God. And children of God's love, love each other. That's the evidence. That's the proof of genuine faith. May we, church family, show it, live it in this season more than ever. We can love because we've been loved. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.